moment. And driving over the bridge, you can see the haze. And of course, this is climate change. Climate change is not a theory, it's not a fantasy, it's not something that we're messing around with, it is the reality of our lives. It is every breath that we breathe, it is in every cell of our body, and it will be with us until we die. And it will, hate to break it to you, and I know I'm starting this off on a very serious note, but I want you to know this is serious, and this is something we all have to take very, very deeply, and we can't forget, it will kill our children. And I was on the march in Sydney recently with more than 50,000, mostly children on this march, and you look out at them. And these poor kids, the world that we have left them, you know, most of the people here, like talking to my mum the other day, she's like, oh, well, I'll be gone. <laughs> I'm like, you've heard of this, we've got this thing called rebirth in Buddhism. And... <laughs> You think you're going to escape. <laughs> and it's not quite that easy. And we have lived in a way that has forgotten the wisdom of the past and it's forgotten about how to live with nature and we've forgotten how to live simply and we've got all of these big shiny new toys and we've gone, wow, hey, let's go and do what we can with these toys. And we've ruined the world. I mean, it's shocking. So one of the things which is a, a, of urgent importance for me as a Dhamma teacher is to try to speak about this, to speak about my own uh, anxieties. And so I was speaking yesterday with another senior monk about this and I'm like, you know, I've been a monk for 25 years and I'm freaking out. <laughs> He's like, I've been a monk for twice as long as that and I'm freaking out as well. And how do we do this? How do we talk about it? How do we communicate about it in a, in a community? It's too much, isn't it? It's too much. You can't take it in. And the reality is, you know, I travel, these days I travel the world and I see people in different places and everywhere you go, there's something. When I was in Singapore, I sat down at the very nice dana, very nice meal time, and there happened to be a civil engineer there and the, there'd been heavy rains that night and the flat we were in had been flooded. And I was just talking about this with the civil engineer. He said, well, the, actually, these apartments were built for 100-year floods, right? I mean, these have been engineered for 100-year floods. Now they flood every four or five years. And I said, what is Singapore doing f to mitigating its climate change? He said, well, we're, you know, we're, they want to build a one-metre-high seawall around the whole of Singapore. Uh, but the sea level is going to rise more than one metre, so it's going to be completely useless. He said, well, yeah, you're right. They're, they're talking about building a floating airport. Right? So these are happening in Singapore. Jakarta, I don't know if anybody here is from Indonesia, but Jakarta, they're already planning to move the capital city because Jakarta will be flooded. Bangkok, there's already talk about moving Bangkok. That too will be flooded. My region in Southeast Asia, there'll be 100 million displaced people uh, before too long. 25% of Bangladesh will be underwater. Colombo will be gone. The Ganges Delta is gone. The Mekong Delta is gone. Perth is gone. And we have no capacity or no plan to deal with anything even remotely like this. 
I've spoken with prime ministers, I've spoken with environment ministers, I've spoken with CEOs and all of these kinds of people and everyone is out of their depth. Everyone's out of their depth. And so I'm not immune to this by any means and I feel the fears and the anxieties and a few days ago I was staying in a house uh, with a family, a very nice family in, in LA and the son was uh, deeply traumatized, you know, deeply traumatized, suffering from serious uh, you know, psychological breakdowns because of his anxiety about climate change, 18-year-old kid. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah? What are we going to do about it? I don't know, I don't have any answers and I am a bit suspicious of anybody who says that they do have an answer. And if anybody says, well, this is how we solve it, I'm like, well, if that's how we solve it, how come we haven't solved it <laughs> if we know how to do it? So I'm not here to tell you what to do, all right? I'm not here to tell you you should do this kind of activism or that kind of activism or anything like that. I'm not, I haven't got a solution for you. Maybe there's a solution, maybe there isn't. But what I am interested in doing as a spiritual leader and a spiritual teacher is finding some way where we as a spiritual community, can learn to live with the truth. So it's not, for me, it's not a question of what do we do, how do we find a solution. There are activists and engineers and technicians and politicians and so on who are doing that. Our job is, as spiritual people, how can we live with the truth? How can we live with honesty and integrity? And I think most importantly, how can, how, can we acknowledge that no matter how anxious and how freaked out we might be, how lost and how confused, how ignorant we might be, can we still be a refuge for others? At the very least, we've got something of the Dhamma. At the very least, we've got something that can give us some stability, some compassion, some ability to reach out. So these are some of the themes that I want to address through uh, today's uh, uh, session. And I apologize if I'm being very confrontational, but frankly, time's running out. And I've been part of, I've been part of, I was an activist long before I was a Buddhist, since I was 18 years old. I was a member of Animal Liberation. And we knew all of these things then. This is not new. I mean, greenhouse effect was common knowledge in the 70s. The environmental impact of meat-eating was well known. The rising of, of swine flu and bird flu, this is, all, this is all common knowledge that these things would happen. The nefarious... I was from Australia, one of our least... Uh, least uh, how could I put this? Least fondly remembered exports from Australia is Rupert Murdoch and Fox News. <laughs> And I am so, so sorry. I apologize to you all for that. Uh, all I can say is during the 80s, I was part of an anarchist group in the 80s who was leafleting and trying to warn people about how dangerous Rupert Murdoch was. We, did, we, tried, to, we tried to tell people, but obviously we didn't try hard enough and we didn't do enough. And look, that's just my little bit of experience and I'm sure you know, there's a lot of experience in this room and there is a lot of people who have done a lot of things over the years. 
And it's one of the things which is frustrating for us is to think, <laughs> actually, yeah, we, we knew. And we've known about climate change. The first presentation to the oil industry on climate change from scientists was in, 19, I think, 1958. And they've known since then. I mean, the science was known before then, but that was when it was explicitly presented to the oil industry. We've known. And as one of my uh, great contemporary spiritual inspirations said so memorably, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you just sit there and do nothing and just let all of this happen? And we've seen Greta Thunberg schooling the, the so-called leaders of the world. And by golly, they need it. So for today, we get the chance to sit together to discuss some Dhamma together and to hopefully find a way to be able to live with the reality of this change which is affecting all of us in everything that we do. And I mentioned before that I was at Singapore. Singapore, the wealthiest, most developed city in the world. And also six months ago, I did a, taught a retreat in Central Australia, the, the kind of the exact opposite, the most remote region, one of the most remote regions in the world. Staying on an Aboriginal community, just a very small community, maybe a dozen people living there. And we were shown around by one of the, one of the men who was in the community, who was maybe in his 30s or something like that. He showed us around the community, told us the stories. And we got to learn a little bit of what it was like to live in a life where your being was intrinsically connected with the soil. And one of the things that kind of really struck me on that retreat, I'd be sitting there giving a Dhamma talk, and I gave a Dhamma talk on the four elements. And when you talk about the earth element, you can pick up the earth, and you realize how beautiful it is. It's so beautiful. It's just dirt. And when we live in cities, we, we train ourselves to think that even a speck of dirt, there's something wrong with it, right? It's so weird. Someone, put, someone puts a muddy footprint inside your house. You're like, oh, that's bad, that's wrong. There's something wrong with earth. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with earth. The earth was here first. Yeah? And we've made it into something dirty. And when you're there and there's nothing but earth all around you, you realize that it is so beautiful. And the world is such an incredibly beautiful place. Like those of you, today we were driving out across the bay and I mean, it's so beautiful, right? And the dawn and you see the sunrise and the light on the water. It's so incredible. But of course you can see the haze today, right? It's very noticeable. Now, one of the things that I first noticed when I went to Asia, I went to Bangkok, and the sky is this murky pea soup, yellow, off yellow colour. And in Australia, of course, you see the stars. Even if you're in a city, you can, the, the skies are relatively clear and you can see the stars. So I've grown up, and it's normal to be able to see the stars. Of course, if you go to central Australia, then it's even more incredible. Right? The stars are just amazing compared to even Australian cities. And even so, even so normally, the stars are so incredible. One night when I was on this retreat, 
I was walking back, we had the Dhamma sharing and gathering around a campfire, and then I walked back. I was, at that retreat, we slept in swags, which is just like a canvas sheet with a thin mattress, and I put my swag down on a creek bed. Uh, just FYI, in Australia, creeks mean a dry piece of... and rivers and lakes is like dry sand that uh, historically, at certain points, may have had water in it. Uh, so anyway, so I put my swag on a creek bed, and I'm sleeping there, a couple of miles out from where we were staying. Anyway, and I was walking back. And as I walked back, I glanced at the sky. Now, even knowing how clear and how pure and how beautiful the air was, I, I, I literally staggered and almost fell over. The, sky, the stars were so incredible. It was just like this three-dimensional array of multicolored billions of lights just pouring down from the sky. And it was like, why am I even bothering to put a torch on? There was no moon or anything like that, but it's so bright you can just see everything around. And when that morning I came back to the camp the next morning and even the local Aboriginal people were saying, well, it was really clear last night. <laughs> I don't know why, some atmospheric condition. And you just see, it's just so amazing. And so we're in this place which is so remote and so beautiful. And we're looking out on the pristine, untouched wilderness of Central Australia. Or what I thought was the pristine, untouched wilderness of Central Australia. And the Aboriginal leader there said, you know, this has changed so much since I was a boy. What, what do you mean? He said, when I was a boy, all the grasses were different. These are all African grasses. They imported these to feed the cattle. So Australian grasses grow in clumps, quite separated from each other. And not so much food for the cows. So the cattle ranchers bring in these African grasses that grow, grow closer together. They can feed more cows with them. And then when the fires come, they burn hot. The, the Australian grasses burn cool and they regenerate the seeds. And the African grasses grow close together, they burn hot and they destroy all the seeds. And so when a fire goes through, 100% of the native seeds are gone. And this is all across central and northern Australia. He said, we used to see all of these wildflowers, all of these different species, none of it's there anymore. We used to hear the dingoes howling at night. We can't hear them anymore. We used to see the kangaroos would come around. We can't see them anymore. And so for me, this is so devastating to be in... Central Australia in this most remote wilderness area and to realise that even here so much has changed and so much has been lost. And so in the world that we live in the world we live in we are just losing every day. While I'm talking I've been sitting here talking to you for the last 20 minutes or so on. Species are becoming extinct. Millions of tons of CO2 are pouring into the atmosphere. It's not as if we're stopping this. We're still doing it, and we're still doing it at a faster rate than ever. We're not slowing down the amount of CO2 we're putting in the atmosphere. We're accelerating the amount of CO2 we're putting in the atmosphere right now. So we have this. We have each other. We have the Dhamma. We have a chance to live and we have a chance to love each other 
and we have a chance to be free and we have a chance to let go and it's up to us to take that chance so for today I had expected to have a projector so we could do some suttas and discuss some suttas but apparently the projector has manifested its intrinsic emptiness <laughs> so sadhu 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 that's wonderful that we have less technology to deal with and the world is probably much better for that because well I mean I, I don't mind using a projector sometimes but it's usually nicer to talk to people than to talk to a screen so let's do that instead so what I'd like to do for today, if it's okay with you, then let us take this theme of impermanence, let's take this theme of connection with nature, let's take this theme of living and being able to, to be alive, to find some joy. I mean, let's assume everyone's dead in a hundred years. If you're the last man or the last woman left alive, what would you want? Would you think back to 100 years? Would you think all those people, I hope that they suffered? You'd probably think, well, I hope they had a good time while they were there. So we don't know what's going to happen. We do know, however, that... We do know, I think, one crucial thing, which is that all of this, all of this destruction, is driven by greed, by greed for material things. It's driven by stupidity. People not knowing what the consequences of their actions are. And to a degree that perhaps I think I am only just becoming unaware of, uh, it's also driven by hate. And one of the things that... I, I've been in Australia, I've been part of a group called Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. And we have represented on this issue for more than a decade to the Australian government. <laughs> With a rather cataclysmic lack of success. And one of our core messages has always been that this is a deeply moral issue because those who are most affected are the poor, people in developing nations, people who are disadvantaged. These are the people who we who are most vulnerable, whose homes will be first to be flooded away, who have the least uh, backup, the least resources, the least food, the least water, uh, and they will be hurt the most. And we've seen this in contemporary times with Puerto Rico and the tragedy that unfolded there. We've seen it with Mozambique, a million people displaced. We've seen it so many times happening all around the world. And we took this message to our politicians and we tried to raise some spark of moral sensibility in them. Looking back, I realised that we misunderstood the problem, that this is not a bug, it's a feature. The fact that it's hurting the poor and the brown and the over there, that's how the system's designed to work. And the... Buddha always said that the three drives greed, hate and delusion and we know that these things are caused by greed, that's obvious we know they're fueled by delusion but also that element of hate and cruelty I think is really important to understand and when we understand that 
we know that these things are human things, that they are inside us, that those same things that have hidden, you know, we can, we can complain about Fox News and say, oh, these so much lies and so on there and all of these kinds of things. But we also have been hiding the truth from ourselves. And we also have been afraid to face the reality. And we also are sometimes okay with things as long as it hurts someone over there who isn't us. So this is what the practice of compassion is about. It's what the practice of morality is about. It's what the practice of wisdom is about. So by extending our Dhamma practice, we should become kinder, more loving, more understanding. I hope that's the case. And if the Dhamma is working well, then that should be the case. I'm not convinced that it always is the case. I think sometimes we do Dhamma practice to hide our problems from ourselves, to convince ourselves that we really are full of love and to surround ourselves with the aura of being a good person. And when we surround ourselves with the aura of being a good person, then we can't be somebody who would do these bad things or would endorse these bad things. And yet, obviously, that isn't always the case. So as these these times come up, remember that the Buddha always encouraged us to confront reality and to confront reality in a way that was courageous. Recently on my forum, we've been discussing how to translate Nibbāna. And of course, you know, Buddhists like to argue about Nibbāna, just like we like to argue about jhanas. I'm not sure if the argument about Nibbāna or jhanas is ever conduced to actually realising these things, but anyway, that doesn't stop us. We've got to entertain ourselves somehow. And so people have these many different... Uh, translations of Nibbāna, sometimes people translate it as quenching or as, um, what are the other ones, extinguishment, or sometimes people leave it untranslated or uh, unbinding and these different kinds of things. Now, the thing with Nibbāna is that when I was doing my translation, I, my, my thought was, and my the guiding principle for me doing the translation was the most important principle that I always bore in mind was what I call, I call to myself the principle of least meaning. The principle of least meaning. Which means that when you translate something, that you translate it according to the thinnest meaning possible. Right? You translate it very directly as, as just what the basic, ordinary, everyday meaning of something is. Why? Because when we come to a spiritual realm, and dealing with ancient spiritual texts, there is an almost overwhelming desire to load words with meaning. And we have whole exegetical traditions that heap up these great burdens of meaning on words. And these poor little words have to struggle under this whole burden. And it's not fair. right? We should have compassion for the poor word. It's just trying to... 
It's just trying to say its thing, right? The Buddha was just talking ordinary language and he was using the words in his language that best describe the thing that he's talking about. And so when we, we sort of put layers of philosophical assumptions and traditions and things like that on top of words, we kind of obscure what the basic point of it was. Now the basic meaning of Nibbana is pretty straightforward. It means extinguishment. When a flame goes out, it becomes extinguished and that's what Nibbana means. It's not particularly controversial, actually, from a linguistic point of view. But then the real issue is that people don't like it. People get scared. And people are like, hang on, you can't say it's extinguishment because then people will freak out. Right? That's the point. You should be freaking out. If you're not freaked out by Nibbana, you don't get it. Yeah? And you know, plenty of examples of that in the suttas themselves. You know? How can Nibbana be pleasant if you don't feel anything there? That's what people say, right? They're freaked out by this idea. How can Nibbana be pleasant if there's nothing which you feel there? And the answer to that, of course, is letting go. Because when you let go, you feel happy. And when you let go again, you feel happy again. And when you let go more, you feel happier still. Now, that's not necessarily going to happen in every case, right? I mean, you might think, well, I'm just going to let go of my job. And you're not going to feel happy when they drag you off to jail because you couldn't pay your mortgage, right? So you have to have a bit of common sense in how you apply this thing. But the basic idea is there. A couple of years ago in Sydney, I uh, went to a house invitation with a young Sri Lankan couple. They had just bought this new house and they invited me to have the meal and to do a blessing for them in their new place. And they told me the story that when they had settled the mortgage for the new house, the husband went to work that day and uh, told his boss, he said, oh, you know, just, we had some good news, we settled the mortgage for the new house. And the boss laughed and said, ha-ha, now we've got you. <laughs> Australian sense of humour. And he got home from work that day and told his wife this story, and his wife said, oh my God, my boss said exactly the same thing. <laughs> That's how they get you. They convince you that this is freedom that this is happiness, that this is what you want. And Buddhism says exactly the opposite. We say it's freedom to let go of these things. Freedom to not have these things. And I'm going to now show off, okay? What? I'm allowed to? I'm the teacher. You see, <laughs> it's my bowl. It's my monk's bowl. All the nuns here, you have your bowls? Yeah? Yes. That's it. And when I, and I travel, I have my bowl, I have my bag. That's it. And my, my uh, extra robe and my laptop. <laughs> so Buddha said, these are the five requisites. Didn't the Buddha say the five requisites? Something like that? Bowl, robes, arms, food, medicine, and laptop? Uh, something like that. I'd have to go and check the comparative study of the Chinese versions to attest to that one. But 
so you know we, we make some we make some 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 adjustments, but that's it. And when I when I got off the plane once, I was teaching in, in Austria. I got off the plane in Vienna. Oh, this, this microphone feels like it's coming off. Mm. These things always these things always drift around. Maybe I've got maybe I've got weird shaped ears. Is that right? Is that a good? Okay. Okay. So I get off the plane and they're like, "Oh, you don't have to collect your luggage." You know, this is this is all you, you you know. It's so nice as a monk, you only travel with one bag. And I said to them, "No, no, you don't understand. That's not what I travel with. That's all my possessions. Everything that I own fits into that bag. And you know what the crazy thing about that is? And I was just thinking about that the other day when I'm travelling around with this bag and thinking, I'm going to get home and half of these things I won't use. <laughs> Literally. Half of these things, I, or if I do use them, I could have easily gone without them. So how much do we need? How much do we have? And this is that wisdom that we've had for humanity has always had. And, you know, I talked before about the Aboriginal traditions and about the wisdom that they have. But, you know, I mean, sometimes we romanticize this, you know, but it's not just sort of Aboriginal traditions or anything like that. I remember when I was a teenage boy, 15 or whatever it was, 14 or 15 or something, and I started shaving. And uh, I had a uh, disposable razor, disposable uh, razor blade. And my grandmother looked at it and she was like, I don't like those things, they're so wasteful. My grandmother wasn't a greenie, she wasn't an environmentalist, but that was the way she was brought up. You don't waste things. You don't just you know, have a whole razor and throw it away, you have a blade and you sharpen the blade. And that's the way that people have lived for thousands of years. And we are the weird ones. We are the ones who've decided we can have whatever we want and just throw it away and somehow that's going to be okay because it's someone else's problem. And then we, we literally ship all of our crap off to some other country. I don't know if America does that, but certainly Australia was doing that. Yeah, America does the same thing. Until China said, no, we're not having it anymore. Good on you, China. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's, it's just... And every year it seems to get worse, you know. At the monastery I was at in, in, in Perth, in Bodhnyana Monastery, they had in the, the, uh, the retreat centre, somebody had given us a very... Please, come in. Someone had given us a very nice coffee machine. And so one of these coffee machines that has these little pods that you have to put in. I'm like, I hate these things. Like, I loathe them with a passion. And... You know, bring it up at the Sangha meeting and say, can we please get rid of this thing? And they're like, well, what do we do? Do we give it to someone? You can't give it to someone because as soon as someone has it, you have to keep buying those pods to use it. That's how they get you, right? This is what it's all about. I said, no, no, no. We take it up to the workshop and we smash it to pieces with a sledgehammer. <laughs> That's what we do with things. 
<laughs> I don't think we ended up doing that, but that's what I, I certainly wanted to do. That it would have been very at least you'd have at least you have like a moment satisfaction in doing that. <laughs> now we have to make a stand against these things. We can't just sort of drift along and think that it's okay. And so, in when we do dhamma practice, when we meditate, we sit down to meditate. And please come in, you are just in time. (laughs) Uh, When we sit down to meditate, the weird thing about meditation is, I don't know if you've noticed, but the weird thing about meditation is that there's nothing there. And then we kind of fill it with stuff. Now, let me just see if this is familiar to you. Okay, you sit down to meditate. Right? You've meditated. Everyone here has meditated before, right? Is that correct? If we anyone new to meditation, it's all right if you are, but I just want to make sure everyone meditate. Okay, so you sit down to meditate. Okay, cross your legs, whatever, close your eyes, and then you try to you try to watch your breath. Is that right? Something like that. You try to concentrate on your breath or some other meditation. Yes, more or less. Then when you try to concentrate on your breath, then you try to concentrate on your breath for. A, two or three breaths, and then your mind goes wandering, right? Something like that. And then all of these thoughts start coming into your mind. Is that right? And you're trying to get rid of all of these thoughts, but it's really hard. And it's really hard to keep your mind steady and to concentrate on the breathing. Is that that correct? Does that sound more or less like your meditation? This This is something which is like I've heard so many times. I've heard this story. And it almost seems like every time I talk to people about meditation, they tell me something like this. And, you know, a few years ago when I was in, in, sit, in Perth, I arrived home from Perth and I uh, got a taxi in from the airport and I'm chatting with the taxi driver. He's a lovely guy named of Chris. And you know, has, oh, he's like, he, he, he meditates as well. I said, how's your meditation going? He says, well, he sits down, he tries to concentrate on his breath, but then it's really hard and all of these thoughts keep coming in. And distracting him. I'm like, oh, yeah. So even Chris, the tra- taxi driver, has the same problem. What if I was to tell you that the Buddha didn't teach meditation in this way at all? That nothing in what I've talked about meditation has really any... It's just not how the Buddha spoke. And what if I suggested that the language, the ideas the concepts behind meditation shape what we do when we close our eyes to meditate. And that if we if we change our approach then none of these things are a problem anymore. Would that be good? Does that sound good? Yeah? An example. Okay, I will get there. I will get there. Okay, so first of all, see how this this occurred to me, like, you know, doing this thing, doing these practices, talking to people about meditation for so many years, and also working with with Pali texts and with the Buddhist suttas. And look, I'm very thick, okay? I'm very slow. It takes me a long time to figure stuff out. And it took me, like, more than a decade to work this kind of thing out. And then, despite the fact that I had very good teachers who were actually saying the same thing, but you just don't quite get it. But what, 
when the Buddha was talking about, let's just take breath meditation as an example. The Buddha is talking about breath meditation. So sato vaasasati, sato pasasati. Yeah. Introduction to breath meditation repeated countless times throughout the suttas. So sato vaasasati, sato pasasati. He sits down, tries to concentrate on the breath, and then all. No, actually, he doesn't say anything about that. There's no trying. There's no concentrating. There's no the breath. These things are not. These concepts are not found in the Buddha's teachings of meditation at all. What it says is, mindfully, one breathes in. Mindfully, one breathes out. Can you hear the difference? There's no such thing as the breath. The breath is just what we do. It's a verb, not a noun. Right? You're breathing mindfully. Many years ago, I heard somebody at an interfaith event talk about this, and they, they used the phrase, God is an adverb. God is an adverb. God is not a thing. God is how you live. God is how you do things, how you manifest your love and your being in the world. I thought that was really beautiful. So the same thing. Mindfulness meditation, mindfulness meditation, it's not something that you do. It's the way that you do it. You're all breathing already. There's nothing special about it. But it's the way that we do it with mindfulness. Let me, let me come back to that. I want to make this more clear because it's something that... It, uh, uh, okay, I'll, te- I'll tell you this. I've taught this many times. And usually what I find is when I teach like this, at the end of the talk, somebody will say, okay, that's all very well, but when I try to meditate, I try to concentrate on the breath and all of these thoughts keep coming in. <laughs> right? Now, sometimes I teach this and then I say that. I say that people say that. And then people still get up and say that at the question. (laughs) Literally, I'll say, people say, I'll try to concentrate on my breath and all these thoughts keep coming in. And somebody immediately after would say, yes, but when I try to meditate, I try to concentrate on the breath, all these thoughts keep coming. It's so deeply ingrained into how we think about and how we approach meditation. Right? Now, I'm not going to go into the historical background. Obviously, this has a history to it. And I think it's important to acknowledge this. Meditation has a history. I wrote a book called The History of Mindfulness. And that's conditioned by texts. It's conditioned by geography. It's conditioned by culture. It's conditioned by events. And we can go back as historians and look into that. And if you're interested, we can talk about that a bit later. But I don't want to go into necessarily the history of that right now. The important thing is just to simply acknowledge that the way that we think about it is conditioned. And we don't have to think about it in that way. We can approach it in a different way. And the way that we think about it shapes what we do. And what we do shapes what the outcome is. Or to put it another way, none of you would have meditated if you'd never heard of the word meditation. And so we have this kind of conceit that when we meditate that we're going beyond words. But it's only words that have directed us to go beyond words. And what we experience is still shaped by those words in some way, even if they're not directly, and even if you're not thinking them at the time. So let me, let me just go into this about meditation a little bit. Okay, so here we are. I'm here. I'm going to watch the breath. Right? The breath is there. The breath is my object. We use this word object of meditation. 
Would it surprise you to learn that the Buddha never used the word object? That there is no word for object in that sense in the Pali Canon? Or at least in the early parts of the Pali Canon? So when we talk about a meditation object, we're already using the kind of language that the Buddha avoided. And after studying the suttas for 20 years, I learned to pay attention to these things because the Buddha was very, very precise in the way that he said certain things and then didn't say certain other things. Okay, I'm here. I'm watching my object, which is the breath. I'm going to try to focus on that. And then all of these thoughts keep coming in and disturbing me. Yeah. I'm trying to watch that. Oh, these thoughts keep coming in. Oh, they're coming in. And you've got those, this kind of thing. Please come in. I bet you're just in time. We're just about to get to the good bit. <laughs> and it's all complicated, right? So start to ask yourself these questions. What is this object that's the breath? I mean, the breath isn't something that's different from me, is it? The breath is something I'm doing, it's not a physical thing. And I'm staring at this object, but somehow, in order to create this idea, because we've heard of the word, take the breath as your object, pay attention to this. Like in the future, if you listen to people talk about meditation, when you read Dhamma books and things like that, pay attention to the way that they're using language. And they say, take the breath as an object. Once you've done that, you've already separated the breath from yourself. Your, your internal subjectivity, your awareness is separated from the breath. And then people say, all of these thoughts keep coming in and bothering me. Where do they come from? Whose thoughts are they? That guy over there? <laughs> are they being beamed by the government? <laughs> Whose thoughts are they? Well, they're your thoughts, dummy. Usually, I think. Hopefully, right? They're your thoughts. But what does that language tell us? Right? These thoughts keep coming in. What that tells us is that we've divided ourselves from our thoughts. We've disowned them. Somebody once gave me a simile in meditation. They said it was meditation, sometimes you, know, you have to be mindful of your thoughts. Like if you're standing on a railway station and you watch the train of thought go past. Uh, but um, uh, after a while, I realize it's completely wrong. It's, it's like you're riding the bicycle of thought. You can't just sit there and watch the, ride, the bicycle of thought ride itself by. You're the one who's riding it. You're the one who's pushing the pedals. So this is all getting very complicated. I'm in here. I'm watching my breath, which is an object out here. All right exists objectively, all right? And then these thoughts who aren't really mine, they come in and they start distracting me. Next question, which is when it gets really creepy, who is this? Oh my God. I'm obviously not my breath, because that's out there. I'm not my thoughts, because they're coming in from outside. Who am I? Well, who am I? In that scenario... Who am I is the good one. I'm the pure one. I'm the meditator. I'm the one who's mindful and is aware and knows. Right? That's why these thoughts can't be mine, because these thoughts are nasty sometimes, and they're evil and they're bad, or at the very least they're annoying. 
So that can't be, I'm here, I'm pure and good, right? I'm sitting here meditating, you see? I've got a nice smile on my face and I've got a good posture and I'm very virtuous because I'm doing my meditation. I'm looking forward to, you know, telling my partner that I've done my daily meditation or something like that, right? I'm pure and good because I have this pure and good motivation to do meditation. So I can't own these thoughts because these thoughts are not pure and good. So this is why we distance ourselves and cut ourselves off from these things. And so because of the way that we've approached meditation, we've created a divided self. And then we say to ourselves, let's unify ourselves, right? Let's find a point of oneness. And that's why it's hard work. And it's hard to find that because we put all of that effort to divide everything up. Actually, it's natural for these things to come together. And if we understand how the mind works, then this whole process becomes a lot less like hard work. Our minds are complex and they have many different facets. And it's true. We divide different parts of our mind off from each other, sometimes in more healthy ways. Right? I mean, sometimes we have those parts of our mind we might use at work, other parts you might use if you're, you know, whatever, with your family or something. So it's, it's okay. It's okay to have different parts of your mind that you use in different ways. But it's when those walls get too strong and the doors get locked and you can't find your way from one to the other. This is where things become problems. So in meditation, all of those things start to relax and they start to dissolve. This is a natural process. And so you don't have to do anything about it. So I'll give you a bit of a simile, and this is a simile that uh, works in Sydney. I don't know if it will work here, but I will try it anyway. In Sydney, when I was there in 2013, I think it was February the 13th, on 2013, we had what we call the angry summer, and uh, bunches of temperature records broke all over the place. And in Sydney, where I was, in the Buddhist library in Camperdown, it was 47 degrees. 47 degrees is a lot. I don't know if you've ever been in heat that great, but uh, essentially when it's 47 degrees, the people wander around saying, oh my God, it's so hot. <laughs> and that's the only thing that you can do. Uh, and we were very lucky in Sydney that uh, the city came through fairly much okay but around that temperature cities start to break down roads start to melt train lines buckle electricity grids collapse emergency services collapse in sydney one of the things that they were afraid of it didn't quite happen then but if it was maybe a degree or two warmer which maybe that'll be this year sydney has colonies of hundreds of thousands of fruit bats uh, that uh, nest in the trees and the parks around sydney and at around 47, 48 degrees, they just drop dead. Uh, this, and this is happening throughout the forest all in Australia and Central Australia, Northern Australia. The, the little creatures, they just drop dead of heat stress. And you can imagine a city the size of Sydney with like hundreds of thousands of just large animals just dropping dead out of the trees. You know, it's a huge health risk and a health hazard. So these things are a great threat. Anyway, so it didn't quite happen that year. Anyway, so I have this, 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 had this 
simile or this parable about two people who are working in an office on a day that's really hot like that. At the end of the day, they've been so stressed and so uh, you know, so much um, so so oppressive. They decide to at the end of the day, one of them says, "Well, why don't we just go f- go down to the beach?" I say, "Okay, let's go to the beach and just relax." So they drive down to the beach and they go for a walk. It's just sunset. And there's a few people around, not too many people, but you know enough people down there enjoying. And the cool breeze is coming in off the ocean. And you know the last light of the sun is just disappearing. And the waves are coming in very gently, not too, not big crashing waves, nice gentle soothing waves coming in. And you take your shoes off. You walk down the beach, enjoying that cool space. And then the two of you, you and your friend, just sit down on the sand and enjoy that cool space. Now, unfortunately, one of those two people is a meditator. And so when they sit down, they think, wow, this is so nice and peaceful. How can I make myself even more peaceful? I know, I'll count the waves. One wave coming in, one wave going out, one wave coming in, one wave going out. Hang on, is that two or three waves? Oh, hang on, I'll start again. All right. One wave coming in, one wave going out. Oh, look at that ship over there. Oh, I lost my concentration again. Okay, one wave coming in. (laughs) And after a while, their friend's like, oh, it's so peaceful here. And the other one's like, oh, I just can't get my mind to be still. So peace, peace, yeah, peace, what we're all looking for. Peace is natural. Dhammata esa, the Buddha said. Sort of dhammata esa, it's only natural. It's only natural that if you live a good life and you don't do no harm, then it's only natural that you won't feel any remorse. And if you don't feel any remorse, it's natural that you will feel joy. And if you feel joy, it's natural that you feel calm. And if you feel calm, it's natural that when you meditate, you feel pleasure. And when you feel pleasure, it's natural that your mind will go into deep samadhi. And if your mind goes into deep samadhi, it's only natural that you'll see things as they really are. And if you see things as they really are, it's only natural that you'll become free. This is how the Buddha taught meditation. Where is the bit about trying to concentrate on your breath and being worried about all the thoughts that keep coming in? That's not how the Buddha taught meditation. One of the... um, One of the curious little details or curious little features about meditation and the suttas is that uh, the word sukha or pleasure or happiness may has many different meanings. So it's used just ordinary happiness, you know, karma sukha, sensual pleasure, and so on. But by itself, in certain contexts, the word sukha can also just mean meditation. Right? Sukha is just used as a word to refer to meditation. Yeah? This is the sukha that we have. 
And when the Buddha was criticised by one of the uh, uh, other, someone from another religious path at the time, they said, oh, your, your monastics, your followers, they just indulge in pleasure all the time. Because in those days they had these kind of hardcore ascetics who were doing all these self-mortification practices and things and saying, your followers, they just indulge in pleasure. And the Buddha said, too right they do. Indulge, what kind, they indulge in four kinds of pleasure. First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. And as a result, in, indulging in those four kinds of pleasure, they enjoy four kinds of fruits. Dream entry, once return, non-return, and arahantship. So the path of letting go is the path of pleasure. It's not to say that we don't experience pain and dukkha and suffering along the way, because of course we do. And the path is still conditioned. The path is still dukkha. Right? But it's a path towards sukha. It's a path towards pleasure, towards happiness. And one of the... Uh, one of the deep truths of the Buddhist path that we learn in our experience through meditation is that pleasure gives birth to itself. And pleasure is something that is intrinsic and natural and normal. It's not something rare that we have to seek outside. We've been persuaded that happiness is hard to find. <coughs> and something I use often as an example when teaching Dhamma is that in, in America they say you have a right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Right? And it's very noteworthy that you have the right to life, you have the right to liberty, you don't actually have the right to happiness. You have a right to the pursuit. And it's the pursuit of happiness that takes you further and further away from actual happiness. Because you think of happiness as something which is out there that you have to get and attain and have. So the Buddha's teaching that happiness is not something out there that you have to get and attain and have. Happiness is something that naturally arises inside yourself. And the hard work is not the hard work of making yourself concentrate and making yourself do these things and all of that stuff. The hard work is the hard work of denying ourselves happiness. The hard work that we've been doing is building those walls, creating that suffering, cutting ourselves off from what our real nature is. That's the hard work. And that's the work which is fueled by delusion. In, in Buddhism we have this word moha, meaning delusion, and delusion is a very active force. Delusion is at work in our minds all the time. And delusion hides the truth from us. We want to know, we want to realize, we want to be free. But delusion is there tricking us and turning us away from the truth. That's the hard work. Finding happiness isn't the hard work. Do you believe me? <laughs> Are you just being too credulous? Maybe shouldn't you be more skeptical? <laughs> I've been exploring it for a very long time. 
Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, good enough. So, why don't we do some meditation? Would you like to do some meditation? Okay, now, so what I would like to do for the meditation, should we, should we do some breathing meditation? Does that sound like a good idea? <laughs> what? No? You're all kind of nervous now. You think this is a trick? Yes, yes, you're starting to get to know me. Okay. Um, let's do some breathing meditation. All right. Let's do this breathing meditation with beginner's mind. Okay. Let's forget the fact that we've ever meditated before. Forget all the retreats that we've done. Forget who you are. Forget any method that you've learned. I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to sort of criticize any methods. If you learn any methods or whatever, then keep doing them. That's fine. But maybe just it's not all the methods are fine. But just like have it like a different, slightly different attitude towards it. I'm going to teach you a bit of a method now, but not too much. The goal of a meditation method, the purpose, the real purpose of a meditation method, is to distract you from your meditation. It's to give you something that will convince you that you're actually doing something so you don't go and interfere too much in the actual meditation, which is what happens when you're not paying attention. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're meditating and you're doing this meditation and you're like, oh, my mind's distracted and you can't focus. And then after a while you realize, hang on, somehow I feel peaceful. It kind of snuck up on me and I wasn't looking. And I turned around, oh, actually, I did feel peaceful. How did that happen? So this is why we have a meditation. It's to give ourselves something to do because we can't just switch to like a complete letting go. We need something to sort of lead us towards letting go. So I'm going to teach you like a bit of a meditation method for breathing meditation, and then hopefully we can use that for letting go. How, How long would you like to meditate for? Half an hour. We have one... 40 minutes? Roughly, oh, we'll do a half an hour, 40 minutes or so. But my, my, personally, I think that there's not... If you're not on like a, a long retreat, there's probably not much point in meditating much longer than that. I think most people after half an hour, 40 minutes, their just minds sort of tend to fall asleep or drift or something. So we'll do that and we'll see how we go. All right. So if you're not comfortable meditating, then uh, just uh, don't worry about it. Just sit there and do nothing. So I'll do, a, I'll do a, a little bit of guidance in the meditation, but not too much.
And as we sit here quietly and take a few minutes to just relax and settle back. And feel the mind just calmly go back into the body. Feel the body settling back into the chair or into your seat. And you can feel the energies that are sparking and moving in your body as we're sitting here in the present. Okay, so <clears throat> so how was that? Is that all right? Enjoyed? That's good. Now, I believe we're going to break for lunch at 11 o'clock. Is that correct? Yes? Okay, 11 o'clock. Now, before we do that, I want to uh, do a little exercise with you all. And we're going to do something, and I'm going to ask you to trust me. So do you, are you all happy, if, if we do an exercise in a minute, are you all happy to go along with it? You sure? It depends. It depends. 
Um, now I'm hearing the voice of wisdom. Sad, sad, sad. Okay, so what I, I'm going to, um, what we're going to do, if you don't want to do it, then that's, that's all right. But what we're going to do in a minute, we're all going to get up. We're all going to go to the other side of the room, introduce ourselves to somebody that we don't know, and then we're going to give them something. Okay, a gift. So you, everyone here, will, and we'll give each other a gift. All right. You want to do that? Okay. That's it. That's the exercise. Let's do it. And it's for reals, right? If you give them your car keys, that's it.